As Jesus was leaving the temple there in Jerusalem, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones and what magnificent buildings. Do you see all of these great buildings, Jesus replied? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? And Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and will deceive many. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places and famines. And these are all the beginnings of the birth pains. And that is uh, the gospel reading today, the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together, please. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. Oh Lord, you are our strength and our redeemer. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this chapter 13 of Mark is a very sharp turn, if you will, for what the disciples had experienced in their years following Jesus around Galilee and the areas hearing him teach and talk and watching him heal and, and proclaim the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Just uh, at the, the beginning of this chapter, right before it, Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He takes the 12 disciples into that great city, that holy city, and it's Palm Sunday. People think he's the Messiah. They start waving the palm branches and lying their cloaks down on the streets. But when he gets into Jerusalem, on his way in, he curses a fig tree that is there. And on their way back out later, it's withered and it no longer has fruit on it. And when he gets into the temple and, and sees the money changers and the commerce that is going on there, taking advantage of the people trying to give sacrifice to God, Jesus, in a fit of rage, overturns the tables. And then... Then at the end of the day, as he and the disciples leave the city to go back out and stay in a, in a little suburb called Bethany, there they stop on the Mount of Olives just across the Kidron Valley from, from that temple and the Temple Mount. And the disciples turn and look and see the beautiful temple that is there as the centerpiece of that city. And one of them comments, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings that we see before us. And Jesus' response teaches us the true meaning of faith, what it means to have faith. Because for those almost three years now, the disciples have been following him, trying to learn what does it mean to be God's person? What does it mean to be a faithful person? But before I jump into those, let me give you a quick history lesson, an object lesson, if you will of the Temple Mount and the temple there in Jerusalem. I have a picture, Cameron. You've already thrown it up. Very good. That was built in Jesus' time by King Herod the Great. That was the ruler of Palestine. 
at the bequest of the Roman emperor. This was a public works project called the Temple Mount. And you see in the middle there is a little gilded building. That's all that there is of the temple, a small structure, maybe a little bit bigger than this on the inside. It was about one-tenth the space of that large Temple Mount that was there. And it was built, much like we would think a federal project would be today. It was designed and planned locally, but then request was made to, to Rome, and the emperor said, yes, you may build that, and you may, in my name and with my resources, um, come up with the money to put this thing together. And so Herod does. King Herod builds this great thing. It is the centerpiece of Jerusalem, and people come from all over there, all around the then known world, to worship God, people of Jewish faith. There's two reasons that King Herod, though he was not Jewish, built this great mammoth thing, which is still today considered the most significant building project in the first century. Still, there is evidence of it today that, that I got to see in Jerusalem last year. Why did he build it? Well, first of all, he was trying to make a legacy, a name for himself in building projects. The second reason was this, money. He thought, what a great tourist opportunity. If hundreds of thousands, up to a million people come every year for this, this holy week in Jerusalem to worship, then people will come and they will stay in the places of business. And they will help with tax dollars as well. And so he built this great plaza, if you will, so that the Jewish temple could be built by the Jewish people there in the midst. Listen to the size of it. Five football fields long. That's pretty big, isn't it? Three football fields wide. And for those of you that need math, that's about 900 feet long. And about a 45-acre space upon the mounts as it is there. Uh, up to 250,000 people it could hold at one time. And the retaining walls, and this is what I'm getting at with the sermon, the retaining walls to hold all of this in were so massive that they were considered uh, an undoable feat, and yet it was done. At the largest, at the very base of those retaining walls around, those rocks alone were 16 feet wide, 45 feet long, and weighed upwards of 500 tons. And an amazing feat. And those... Those large rocks would have been street level where Jesus and his disciples would have walked in that day. Imagine they had just walked by stones of that mammoth size and see that big structure like Panther Stadium or something that, that in this day and age would just kind of take us aback. And they marveled at it. And Jesus' response to that teaches us about faith. And the first thing he said that we need to hear about it is that if we want faith that is rock solid, it's not going to be found in temples. The disciple was ooing and eyeing. It did not name it in Mark's gospel who it was, but he was quite taken aback by the sight and having been in there. And you have to remember that the disciples were in a different place than Jesus was at this time. They thought that Jesus was going to reign and rule over Jerusalem. There would be a military uprising. They would be in the inner circle of power. 
Jesus was thinking of laying down his life, of ushering in the kingdom of God on earth in a way that it never had been before. The disciples are worldly focused. Jesus is kingdom of God focused. And they're so taken aback by this sight that they, they are impressed and I think probably see themselves as, as a part of something that great. Jesus' response to them is, is that it's not the things of this world, it's not temples and it's not buildings and structures that builds true faith, though they are important and can be very impressive. But instead, faith is something that is not of this world, but of heaven instead. There is, um, there in Jerusalem, um, a tremendous amount of, of stuff that is scattered all around. A lot of archaeological digs going on. And you see one of the walls there on the left picture of, of what was the Temple Mount. And you see all of the debris scattered down below. That is street level of where it was, we think, in Jesus' day. And those rocks are what were cast down and thrown down by the Romans around the year 70 A.D. You have to keep in mind that that there was always this tension in Jerusalem in Jesus' days, and you can feel it between him and the disciples and all that are there. It led to his crucifixion. This tension between Rome and Jerusalem because Jerusalem did not want to be ruled by someone else. Well, they got too big for their britches, and, and they had an uprising after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection some 40 years later. And the historian Josephus writes that, that the city was besieged by Roman troops in massive numbers. They burned, they pillaged, uh, they killed Jewish people, and they tore down and threw down not just the temple building, but the temple mount itself. They destroyed it so that it would no longer be the place of worship and a centering point for the Jewish people. Jesus is predicting in this passage, I read for you that destruction that is to come. He's using the language of the Old Testament prophets. Many of the things that he predicted that were to come came from those, those Old Testament prophets who prophesied in their day coming destruction and coming destruction that did happen. He speaks in the name and in the terminology of, of Isaiah and, and of Amos and the other minor prophets as well in a way that the disciples would understand what the day of the Lord was going to be like, a dark day, a day in which all upon the earth would be held to account for the way in which they live. Jesus is saying to the disciples, don't get so caught up in the temples and the things of this world that you lose sight of why it is that you are here to live a faithful life in God. And it's important for us to hear that, isn't it? To be reminded not to get so worldly-minded that we're no heavenly good. I was reading an article this past week about, about a man you would think is very worldly-minded, Warren Buffett, his worth, net worth, as of November 1st this year, $84.4 billion. Now, that's too much money for a person to have, I think. But, but what I love about Warren Buffett, and he's still the CEO of Berkshire Hathaway, 
considered one of the wisest and most frugal people, billionaires around, but also one of the, the savviest investors. Is that he still lives in the house that he bought with his wife in 1958. It costs them $31,500. He doesn't carry a smartphone with him in his office. He doesn't have a computer at his desk. He had a license plate. At least his biography said some time back uh, that, that had the word thrifty on it. He is a man that has great means of the world all around him and yet is not captivated by that in such a way that detracts him from, from finding true meaning and purpose in life. I also found out at 88 years old his diet every day still includes five Cokes, Cheetos and potato chips. Now that's impressive. Wilbur, 88 years old. Do you eat that every day? No, no, probably not. Here's what he said at a shareholders meeting a few years back. My life couldn't be happier. In fact, it would be worse if I had six or eight houses. And so I have everything I need to have. I don't need any more because it doesn't make any difference after a point. And it's important for us, no matter what we have, to not get so caught up in it, even in the church and in, in worship spaces, us preacher types, that we would be detracted by remembering faith is not about things, it's about God. And so it's nice for us to be impressed by great human feats of art and architecture and of technology and of building and of science and, and things of that nature, but but as long as we acknowledge that there is a God, a giver of all good gifts, that provides for us, it keeps us in the place of faith. It's not a bad thing to want to have a nice house, but if it is our end-all and be-all, can it eclipse the life of faith that Jesus calls us to? It's important for us to come to God's house here on Sundays and worship. But if our faith just ends on Sunday when we walk out the door and is not a part of our lives for six more days? Have, have we gotten so caught up in the temple that we lose sight of faith being a daily walk? It's a blessing to be able to make a decent living and have the things that we want and to trust people in our lives. But, but really, if we lose sight that it's all alone and a gift from God for us to utilize while we're here, can't we lose sight of true faith, and it's good to be king, to be able to call our own shots and to make our own luck and to choose what we like and to be captains of our own destiny, but if we lose sight that we are only here for a little while, will we lose sight of the faith we're called to? Jesus' point is, is it's not the temple and the stuff, that it's the people and it's God that truly matters. Another thing we learn about faith from this passage is that, that faith is not discovered in predictions and in signs. Did you hear the disciples saying, give us a sign, Jesus. We want to know when are these things going to happen that you're talking about. Yeah, it's easy for us to, to want to place our faith in predictions of what is to come. If you, if you want to know what is about to happen, it's easy to be deflated when it doesn't happen your way. It's easy to get excited when you think you know what's going to happen and be able to predict it. All of us human beings like to know what's coming down the pike, don't we? 
And to that, Jesus says to the disciples, don't be so worried about that. There will be signs all around you and, and be aware of those, but, but don't get so caught up in them. A lot of people I have found want to disregard this whole idea of the, the coming again of Christ, of the fulfillment of his kingdom, of Jesus' return. And yet, throughout the scriptures, uh, we find it's prevalent. 23 of the 27 New Testament books have reference to Jesus' return or coming back once again. But some people just disregard it altogether and live as if there's no God or there's no, no account that will have to be given. There are others that live solely focused on that. Ministers, ministries, churches that are so focused on what is to come and predicting uh, about the end times and the bad things that are to happen, that they're totally blinded to the things of faith that Jesus calls us to each day. And somewhere there's got to be a balance in the middle that says we need to be ready and live as if God is going to walk right in the door today. Are we living our lives in such a way that it would please him? Back when I was fresh out of seminary, and that was coming up on 30 years ago. Me and some of my seminary classmates uh, in the district where I was serving, my first church of my own, had a district superintendent named Bob. And that's all I'm going to say about his name, Bob. Any of you that have to answer to a higher up uh, in your line of work, you'll understand what I'm talking about. But Bob was, uh, was much older than us. He was pretty hardcore. He was uh, old school is what we called him. Well, I won't tell you what some of my friends called him, but, but we did start to call him the Lord. Now, that was not to me disrespectful or to take away from, from Christ being our Lord, but Bob would always say at our district minister's meetings where he had us captivated that he would once a year drop in on us at our church where we pastored and unless we had a really good excuse for not being there, we better be there for him to check on us and see what it is we were doing. And so if we were at the hospital or if we had planned vacation or if we, we had scheduled it and our, our person that was there could answer where our whereabouts was, he was okay with it. But if not, Bob was going to hold us to account and the boom was going to come down. That's why we called him the Lord because he would appear at any time that we had no idea when that would be. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, be ready. Be, be ready to be held to account in all that you do and how the, it is that you live. And we're called to do likewise as well. The last thing about faith that Jesus addresses here is what we all know to be true in our hearts, and yet we forget from time to time, even week to week, maybe even day to day, that it's simple faith in Him and following His example and trusting all it is that He teaches us to do to find a life that is everlasting, life that is fruitful and abundant in the here and now. Jesus said to the disciples, Be careful that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name and they will claim that they are me, and they will try to deceive many. But in our heart of hearts, we have to be true to the one that seeks us out and saves us. He is Jesus Christ the Lord. Just a, 
A few verses before the passage I read from you, Jesus quotes Psalm 118, preparing the disciples for talking about stones that will crumble and what it means to have rock-solid faith. And Psalm 118, 22 and 23 says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done all of this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And Jesus is saying in reference to those great stones, massive and beautiful of the temple, that I am the cornerstone that you need to rest your faith in God upon. It's plain and it's simple, but it's certainly not hard. Uh, Certainly not easy, it is hard. Jesus teaches us that we must cast aside all of those things in life that would keep us from that, worldly things, things that would misdirect us in our faith. The bedrock of our faith is not in temples or signs, but plain and simply in our Lord Jesus Christ. He came to show us a great love that is unmatched by the world, a sacrificial love that put aside everything of this world for himself so that we may live. And we celebrate that. We live it and we accept the gift that it is for us a gift of grace. And so this morning, I pray for, uh, for our faith to be strong as we prepare to close our service. If you would bow with me, please. Oh God, speak to our hearts and minds in these moments after hearing your word and help us to be faithful to following him that calls us and that has laid aside his life for us, and that can bring to us life that overcomes all things, death, destruction, deterioration of the world around us. Lord, let us remember to put first things first and put you above all of the heap of the rubble that surrounds us in our lives. Lord, we know that it is through your Son that we can find our way there and that you will give to us the strength that we need. In all of this, we ask in our Savior's name. Amen.